there's an enormous amount of economic work that's going to arise from filling people's needs. And there's some bottlenecks in the process keeping that from happening in the reproductive medicine area. Now, the nice thing about financing for healthcare, whether it's private equity money that's doing consolidation to drive efficiencies, whether it's venture capital, which is driving innovation, they are attracted to things that work. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Now here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today, my guest is Dr. David Sable. Dr. Sable directs healthcare and life science investing for the Special Situations Fund and is portfolio manager for the Special Situations Life Sciences Fund and the Life Sciences Innovation Venture Fund. Dr. Sable went to Wharton School and the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He then trained his OBGYN residency at New York Hospital at Cornell. He then trained his REI fellowship at Brigham and Women's. He co-founded and served as director of IRMS at St. Barnabas Medical Center in New Jersey. He's now an adjunct in the Department of Biology at Columbia University. He teaches entrepreneurship in biotechnology, which is what we're going to talk a lot about today. And he served as a board member for Green News, Hamilton Throne for Resolve, and has been on the medical and scientific advisory boards of OvaScience Progeny, among others. Today, he is featured on magazines like Forbes and a number of other media outlets and is active on Twitter and social media. Dr. Sable, David, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. I am excited about this because you're the first person that I've had on the show thus far that I haven't met in person. The main reason why I asked mutual friends to connect us is because you are a board certified REI. Now you manage a fund that invests in biotech. And I'd like to start with the elephant in the room, which is when I meet with just about everyone in the field at every given meeting, when you ask people what's their biggest concern, four times out of five, the biggest concern is the consolidation that's happening in the field right now. And maybe before I even ask if you share that concern or, or what it is, could you give us a just an overview of what's happening from your view? Sure. Well, I guess people are voicing concern about private equity, you know, the, the concept of private equity which is you know, sort of an imprecisely defined and understood term, really just one more way of financing a business. And private equity gets a bad reputation because what some in the field do are buy businesses, go ahead and slash costs, try to cut the expenses that the business has, and then they sell the business again, resulting in job losses, sometimes poorer service, not improving the business, actually hurting it. Thankfully, in reproductive endocrine, that has not been the case. And what private equity has done here is kind of right out of a textbook as to what they're supposed to do. Private equity is attracted to profitable businesses that are somewhat decentralized, and they sometimes consolidate them, sometimes improve in terms of efficiencies, and you know, kind of provide the types of financing that the business needs to grow or in some cases to improve. Now, no one makes a program 
partner with a private equity firm. But as programs mature and they're looking for, you know, sometimes the partner's looking for exits or liquidity or means of expanding beyond their local local geographic areas, the private equity funds are one means of, of financing that. I have not seen cases where the private equity funds have put pressure on the IVF programs to change the way they practice. Uh, to be honest, they're attracted to the better practicing, the, you know, the labs with the better success rates. They're doing very, very good jobs. And they're expanding into other areas, maybe providing access to patients that otherwise wouldn't have that. So the, you know, sometimes it's scary to think that you know, private equity is going to come in and change the way doctors practice, but that really has not been the case. Cutting costs is one concern. One common theme that I really hear is a loss of control. I feel that especially physicians are concerned about that because there will be money coming from firm and private equity, they're going to put into a business-centric CEO. And you say that the the cutting costs that we haven't seen that in, in that concern but even if if that isn't the case, I still hear a concern of it's not going to be doctors calling the shots. How do you see that? Well, let's be honest. In some of the a lot of the big practices, doctors are not necessarily calling all of the shots administratively. And you can make an argument that there should be a balance between you know medical decision making and administrative decision making. I did have a background when I was running an IVF program, but I still needed help in terms of management, some of the financing, staffing, hiring and firing. These are things that were not necessarily the doctor's core competence. And as a program enlarges, takes care of more patients, does more and more cycles, it's probably better off that the doctors are spending most of their time doing medical care research and focusing on the clinical aspects rather than the enlarging administrative aspects of the practice. So yeah, I think that the you know, fears that we'll have non-doctors kind of calling all the shots. Really, it's doctors and reproductive endocrine are some of the more sophisticated businessmen within healthcare. And I don't think anybody's making them do anything. Private equity is still pretty new to the field of fertility. It's probably been around for much longer than some of us might realize, but really we've mostly, many of us have noticed it within the last five years. We've seen a number of very big acquisitions in the the last five years. It doesn't seem to be slowing down yet. Has it improved access to care? Do you think access to care is, uh, is there's less access to care now, or do you believe that it's probably neutral. Well, the industry is continuing to grow at about two to five, you know, two to six percent per year in terms of number of cycles. I think the access to care issue is a little bit beyond the private equity concerns and beyond the financing concerns. If you compare the United States IVF industry to that of other developed countries, we're doing probably one third the per capita IVF number of IVF cycles as a lot of other countries. And this goes beyond access, you know, beyond financing. You know, one and a half percent of our babies come from IVF in this country. You go to Australia, the UK, France, it's two, three, four times that. You go to Belgium or Denmark, it's nine times that. You know, we're not doing that much IVF. We don't have access the way other countries do. But I don't think that's a 
you know, it's, I don't think that's dependent on ownership or the financing of the industry. We've kind of fallen into a, I guess, based on the relatively limited number of programs we have, we have about 480 programs, kind of about 1,100 or 1,200 reproductive endocrinologists that are practicing in the country. Everybody's making a decent amount of money. Everybody's very, very busy. So on the practice level and the provider level, everyone's doing a good job. They're doing very, providing very high quality care to the patients that they're seeing. What we don't have is any movement within the U.S. industry that's going to expand beyond the 250 to 300,000 cycles a year that we're doing now, which really grossly underserves the 7 million people with infertility in this country. And it really barely touches the approximately 100,000 or so couples that are at risk for genetic problems that we could be provide be preventing with IVF and we're very well, why, why not because couldn't one smithian argument be that the introduction of capital and of commercial and market interests would scale the technologies and the services to a point where access to care and services could be expanded? Well, it could be, but we need to, you know, we need to increase the throughput. You can only put so many IVF cycles in a given lab. You can only ask a staff of reproductive endocrinologists and their embryologist to do so many cycles per year. So we need to find ways of scaling it. Now, how do we scale that? One is by technology. Ironically, for a field that's very advanced and very new, we are still very, you know, kind of mom and pop the way we run our IVF labs. There's very, very little standardization. There's very little automation of some of the repetitive tasks. Because of that, we're not expanding access to care the way we are in other parts of medicine. Secondly, we have a you know, kind of a trade guild in the United States. We've got reproductive endocrinologists that go through fellowships. They are superbly trained. They do absolutely outstanding work. But they also spend a lot of their time doing repetitive tasks that, frankly, People that are trained in OBGYN, urology, surgery, medicine, nurse practitioners, surgical assistants could be doing some of these tasks if the motivation was to do many, many more cycles. Now, if we do many, many more cycles and we want to give access to a lot more people, we have to lower the price point. And there's been no evil conspiracy that's kept IVF expensive and kept it a relatively small number of people that were that we're treating. But that's just kind of the equilibrium that the industry has fallen into. Is it a necessary equilibrium? And sorry to cut you off because you're probably continuing that thought, but I had Dr. Rob Kiltz on episode number two, for example, and there are a few people attempting that model, which is there are a few practices in the country offering something to the tune of a $4,500 base cycle. And you might say, well, what does that include? And of course, it doesn't include medications. But even when you get up to anesthesia and ICSI and monitoring and PGT, there are people doing that for about $9,000 in the country, which is considerably less than what people are doing for more minimal packages, an average of maybe $13,000, let us say. Why the equilibrium? Well, it's not, not enough people are offering that price point. And it's not necessarily yet. It's a the throughput that they've that they put in place isn't enough to really expand access yet. Yeah, you know, the yeah you know, that that may happen. These things happen. You know, the things do evolve. 
from the point of the consumers, there's a you know, two calculations they make when they decide where to go for care. One is dollars per baby, and the other is amount of care per you know, amount of time until they have a baby. These are rational decisions that they make. And you know, dollars can include the amount they pay to the center. It may include how far they have to travel, how much work they have to take off. And while things may be evolving in a way that there are lower price points here and there, we really need to almost build a parallel industry. The comparison I've always made is that the IVF industry is, it's like a hotel industry where we have nothing but the Four Seasons and the Ritz-Carlton. And if you want to have a nice, a good night's sleep, you know, that, that's it. Those are your only choices. And we need to build the Hiltons and the Sheridans and the Holiday Inns so that people have just as good a chance of having a healthy baby at a lower price point. And that's going to take some alternative practice delivery. It's going to take some extra technology and maybe some change in expectations on the part of the patients themselves. When I ran the St. Barnabas program, it was really a point of pride to us that the patients always had access to a doctor or to a nurse. I used to tell patients that if they emailed me on a given day, I would get back to them personally before midnight the same day. As we expand to doctors overseeing a thousand cycles or 2000 cycles per doctor per year from the approximate 200 that they do now, we may not be able to offer that. We have to come up with other ways to make sure patients feel well cared for. And most importantly, to give them that same chance of having a healthy baby. The Holiday Inn Expresses that I can think of right now, this is pretty anecdotal, but they're, I'm thinking of four examples. They're all in small markets, mostly in interior parts of the country. Do you think that that will could you see smaller markets driving the the value models of REI delivery simply because when you talk to a lot of people coming out of fellowship and doctors recruiting and practices recruiting doctors coming out of fellowship i don't know too many people that are going to the small markets, the small interior markets, almost all of them, it seems, are going to the Bay Area, the the New Yorks, the Bostons, the Los Angeles, the Austin and Denver. Could Do you see the a more value model of REI delivery happening in, in larger cities? Could it be the answer to the access to care issue in the interior? And you know, could you just comment on the private equity and commercial interests in the interior versus the large practices and large markets on the coast? That's a great question, but I think we can look at it from a different standpoint. It's, you know, we, we keep talking about how do we use the same resources, you know, to service an expanded, scaled market. And one of the things that we're focusing on, you know, last year I launched a venture fund that's investing only in innovation and IVF. And one of the things we're focusing on is how do we kind of make more efficient resources or create new resources that can be used in different ways. And one of the assumptions that we are attacking is that everything has to be done in a centralized place. You know, you're, you're probably too young to remember the enormous home entertainment systems that homes used to have, where you'd have a big TV attached to a record player, attached to a radio, attached to two huge speakers, taking up about seven feet of uh, wall space in everyone's living room. I'm just old enough to remember. Okay. Well, that's what an IVF program is like. And we do everything all in the same spot. Now we do a little bit of satelliting, which makes a lot of sense, but the satellites are usually for intakes and monitoring. Now, if we were to be able to split up the IVF cycle 
in a technology sense. Say we could take egg retrieval through vitrification of the eggs, put it into a closed system where the oocytes are never exposed to the air, and we could go from the egg retrieval right to the frozen eggs, take that aspect of the IVF cycle, put storage somewhere else, and put the thaw fertilization development transfer and bio, you know, biopsy analysis and transfer in a third area. We may be able to leverage the expertise of the laboratory in a way that certain parts of the procedure can be done in more rural or less populated areas. And then the patients later move to the centralized IVF labs to do the more specialized work. There's a lot, there's 400 and what, 480 odd IVF programs. There's 35,000 OBGYNs in the United States. If we could, you know, permit, not permit, but give them access to participating. And really, these are their, these are their patients. Let them participate in the care up to the point that they can, that doesn't compromise the outcome. And then when we need the more specialized lab work, centralize that in a way that, can, that they can scale that. This is a means of kind of, you know, kind of balancing the the, uh, the facilities. And these are facilities that we already have. So it seems to me like that could be a counter argument for the concerns of private equity or of commercial interests entering the field, because some of those ideas will come from ingenuity and from implementation at a very micro level, but implementation at scale really requires a lot of money. And so there's ultimately two really two entities that could fund that, either the government investing in research institutions that, that I still don't necessarily know how they would help that scale. I see how they would help with the research or commercial interests that want to implement those systems because they can make money from it. Well, let's yeah, uh, take that uh you know, those points one at a time, government's not going to do it. Government is not going to change the reproductive medicine meeting or reproductive medicine industry. For one, they will not fund medical research when the sperm and the egg are in this dish, dish together. That's not going to happen. Regarding the funding of the you know, funding of the industry, it's been kind of remarkable to me having gone into the on the investing side and looking at the amount of funding that goes into other areas of healthcare. There's 7 million people with infertility in the United States, and we spend about $5 billion on assisted reproduction. There's 15 million people with cancer in the United States, and we spend between 85 and $90 billion to take care of them. Now, I don't begrudge a penny of that. You know, it's, it's, it's a you know, the rational use of, you know, we're a wealthy country. We should spend a lot of money relieving uh, suffering and curing people from cancer. But there's an enormous amount of economic work that's going to arise from filling people's needs. And there's some bottlenecks in the process keeping that from happening in the reproductive medicine area. Now, the nice thing about financing for healthcare, whether it's private equity money that's doing consolidation to drive efficiencies, whether it's venture capital, which is driving innovation, they are attracted to things that work. And for example, in cancer and oncology, you have survival rates, which are relatively easy to measure. In reproductive medicine, we have pregnancy rates, and we are one of the more accountable areas within medicine, so that we tend to fund things that work, and patients will be attracted to things that work, 
And as we make investments in technology that make it easier to provide care cheaper and or to let people that have not had the opportunity to provide care, give them the chance to provide care, you're going to see the price drop as the supply expands. So some of that will be, you know, large investments from large institutions. Some of it will be just kind of organic investments by people in areas that previously couldn't provide this service. And some of it will be leveraging existing facilities and labor in a more effective way. The concern about consolidation is that there are people believe that many people believe that within 10 years, the field will be really run by four or five large practice groups. And the reason why I don't share the concern to that degree is because I see the potential for a similar part pattern to what we've seen in breweries and beer companies and regional banks and, and global banks in that you have SAB, Miller Coors and Anheuser-Busch InBev that seem to have purchased everything, but then the middle size companies like Yingling and Sam Adams start purchasing smaller microbreweries, but then starting the entire cycle anew every time it seems is 12 new micro or craft breweries popping up in every city every five years and i of course we don't see that rapidity or scale in our field so when i think of the three or four practices in the country that are independently owned that are growing at a really fast rate if they wanted to expand beyond their marketplaces. These are groups that don't belong to a large fertility network. I think they would be better off going to the private equity firms themselves because I think these are groups that have a different vision, a different model than what the current fertility networks could offer them. And so I see, and many of these folks have come from uh, either visionary doctors that have left large practice groups or left universities or health systems. And I see this continuing to maybe not increase, but to to be steady, at least to the point where we have the introduction of new players every few years. So I'm not so worried about this impenetrable set of four or five practice groups that control all of the the market or own all of the market within the next decade or two. How do you see the introduction of new players coming into practice ownership in the next decade or so. Oh, I think yes. As opposed yet yeah, as opposed to the beer industry or the hotel industry. Yeah, the IVF and you know we should be doing well over a million IVF cycles a year just to take care of infertility patients. And that doesn't include the many patients we should be doing to prevent disease and to you know preserve fertility after cancer things of that sort. So in the United States or most of the developed world if you want to bottle of beer you can get one here there is an enormous enormous untapped market of people that just have no access to to ivf so yeah i, I teach a course in entrepreneurship and i tend to i like to tell my students don't let the availability of financing of a type of financing dictate the way you run your business or the business that you want to grow and build and there are a lot of very creative ways to build will be enormously successful, profitable, and more importantly, businesses that will provide care to people that really need it that can't have it now, that can be done with very, you know, a lot of different ways of financing them, you know, private equity being just one of them. So the uh, unlike the other industries that you cited, where you're really looking at 
just driving a more efficient way of delivering what's kind of a commodity service. Here we just have, you know, a, an untapped market four or five or six times bigger than the market that's that's being exist that's existing now. That yeah, you know, I'm not that concerned about the incumbents. You know, they can take care. Of, they can take over the entire. 250,000 cycle model that we have right now. And there's plenty of more people that can go in and in innovative ways, take care of the next million or million and a half. And at the same time, you know, help us take care of the 5 million cycles that we need to create in China. That's why when we decided to go into an IVF only fund, we decided to focus on innovation and not on consolidation and efficiencies because we think that a lot of the growth is going to come by yeah, different practice models. But we also need new methods of you know, delivering care. And a lot of that is going to be involved with taking technology off the shelf, modifying it for the needs of an IVF practice and developing very, very high expectation, very, very high outcomes at a much more effective and standardized cost point. Uh, that's what I often say to the people that are voicing these concerns to me, that um, of all the concerns that I have, consolidation of practice groups from private equity firms is really low on the list. As a provider or as a, as a provider that is delivering care uh, on a business model, I would be more concerned with all of the other ways that my patients could be served. That is to say, how other people could serve my patients if I'm not able to innovate to serve them in those ways. And mobile care, as you mentioned, is a, a window that we probably haven't even dipped our baby toe in the water yeah. uh, for, for what's available there. And patient acquisition, the forms of user experience and user interface, I think the opportunity for, I'm, I'm far more concerned with what Silicon Valley could do in terms of patient acquisition and then essentially contracting out to anyone who could provide the care based on their ability to build and scale user experience than I am the consolidation of, of practice groups. Sure. Well, you're also, you, you, were, you know, we're talking just about the supply side right now. When you look at the demand side and you look at the you know, disruption that's going to come from a company like Progeny, which is carving out specific IVF and egg freezing coverage for employers. They now cover over a million people. And if you apply an eight or nine or 10% prevalence, prevalence of infertility to that million people, then we have 80 to 100,000 new people entering the marketplace in an organized way that you know, can, can now knock on the door and ask for IVF cycles. Traditionally, we've been treating the same 120 to 150,000 people per year. And those are the people that can afford to pay fifteen dollars to $20,000 per cycle every two months. And as you mentioned, there are some people that have lower price points and there are mandated states that have variably uh, some effect on the, on the price that's out of pocket. But we have this really coming wave of new people that'll be demanding and can afford IVF services. And if I'm looking at growing, a, growing an IVF practice, I want to look at how I can best meet the needs of that group, because that may be a scalable, very technology sensitive opportunity that you know, can kind of do an end around some of the larger practices that may be more than happy to just consolidate the existing market. So the yeah, if you want to 
build a big practice or protect a big practice in midtown Manhattan or in the Bay Area or in Chicago or in L.A., the market is changing a little bit. The rest of the world, you've got an enormous opportunity to, to take care of people that have a newfound ability to enter the marketplace and are looking for a place to get service. So yeah, the opportunities are very much there. Bit different of a topic from what we've been discussing, but when I when I saw you on Twitter, I just we had to talk about it. We can come full circle when we conclude, which is uh, I, I laughed when I saw you say that the words slippery slope when people are <laughs> are referring to art that those that those words make you cringe. Why? Yeah, that was that was my le- my most recent article in Forbes. Yeah, I was be- in the contemporary lexicon across the board. I think since that it's here, but let, let's talk about you know specifically what makes you cringe about it. Yeah, well, you know, my concerns about slippery slope arguments and bioethics in general and reproduction go back to when we were first were introducing preimplantation genetics for the purpose of preventing genetic disease. The pure good that comes from some of these technologies, to me, is just unequivocal. You know, the uh, preventing a disease or doing an IVF cycle for someone with a balanced translocation who's had six or seven or eight pregnancy losses in a row, and you can you know, help them get a healthy pregnancy, is purely good. Problem was that when you discuss these technologies, very, very quickly, the quite the conversation devolves into discussions of hair color, eye color, athletic ability, and intelligence. It's kind of the big four. And I get asked the question, well, aren't you concerned about the slippery slope to eugenics and Gattaca and, you know, on and on and on. And the reality is the patients that we're treating, we're doing, we're relieving tremendous amounts of suffering. And the attention that that gets is so overshadowed by these potential things that we could do with this technology if it's misused or used in an inefficient way. Yes, we can use preimplantation genetics just for sex selection. And there's certainly a lot of people doing that. But at the same time, we can do it for tremendously wonderful things. To the more casual observer, these things get lumped together and the good just gets you know, it gets pushed away. More seriously, the patients who are using these technologies to have a family health in a healthy way, in ways that they couldn't without them, they hear the news reports, they read the arc- the articles, they, they, the comments that are uh, on social media about the evil eugenic things that we do in assisted reproductive technologies, and. I've had patients, you know, back when I was practicing, second guess or sort of, you know, are being concerned that they were in some way, you know, doing something that was ethically questionable. And we do our patients a major disservice that way uh, by letting the, you know, letting the conversation get hijacked by, you know, these concerns about the way the technology can be misused. Yes, it's important to discuss these things. And we need to make decisions, make hard decisions, to you know, triage our use of the technology in ways that are good. But the slippery slope argument is such a conversation stopper that it's become a, you know, just it, it just fast forwards to the end of the conversation, and it lets people dismiss these very valuable technologies way too quickly. 
I think that's fair. It does. It isn't to say that there aren't concerned. There aren't concerns with the the power of the technology. Commercial interests aside, simply the power of the medicine and the technology and where it will be in a decade in a century are enough. The, the power alone are enough to to have certain concerns about. Your argument is that the word slippery slope and that phrasing in that direction connote an, an automatic negative conclusion that is irrespective of all of the positive aspects that can be brought with it. Exactly. Let's conclude then with, because we've, you've, we've talked a bit about uh, your, your, your optimistic vision for the field, some opportunities for increasing access to care, for expanding the market, for serving uh, segments of the market that are underserved. Let's conclude by anything I didn't ask you about private equity and commercial investment uh, in their relationship with care and any challenges, changes that you see in the next five to 25 years that I haven't asked you about. Yeah, we touched just very briefly on using IVF, expanding the people that we offer the technology to for other reasons. You know, I, you mentioned oncofertility, prevention of genetic disease, some of the uses for the transgender population. And these are things that once we scale the availability of the technology, make it more accessible, more available, there's a enormous you know, new groups of good, of patients that we can do good for. And this is where the nice thing, yeah, I haven't, I haven't practiced medicine or been involved in clinical medicine for 20 years, and now being on the on the business side, this is where they merge. And one of the nice things about investing in healthcare is that if your north star is the good that you can do for patients, it's an extremely, it, it's very good business to focus that way. And you know, the, the there's a nice merging and a coincidence of of incentive behind treating patients well and running a business well. And I think that, you know, thankfully the economics seems to line up that way. Once we start breaking down some of the bottlenecks in the IVF world, just the way we're doing in many other areas of medicine, I think that optimism, you know, hopefully is well-placed. There's a number of questions that I didn't get around to ask you. There's a number of follow-up questions that I thought up as our conversation went on. And given that this field and this relationship with the field is growing and changing so quickly, we'd love to have you back on this show for future episodes. Dr. Sable, thanks so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. No, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you have a strong opinion about today's episode, we want to hear it. Agree, disagree, or have another point to add, please email podcast at fertilitybridge.com and tell us if you recommend a guest or a topic for a future episode. If you're ready to skyrocket your fertility practices growth and double your IVF cycles, schedule your fertility marketing discovery call by clicking the link in the show notes. And if you just want to learn more tactics to market your fertility center, download our free ebook, The Ultimate Guide to Fertility Marketing on fertilitybridge.com, also available in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast, and we look forward to talking more fertility shop on future episodes.